Hello and greetings. I'm so glad that you've joined me. We're so thankful for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In Matthew 21 and verse 23, the chief priests and elders approached Jesus with a very important question. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Now, these chief priests and elders did not ask in sincerity. They were trying to trap him and to expose him as a fraud. They were absolutely sure he would happen to be. Now, despite the treachery of their intention, that question is a valid question. And it's one that Jesus took pains to answer at other opportunities, like in John chapters 5 and chapter 8, when he spoke of his father who had sent him, and that all the things that he did uh, were, were done in, because the, he had seen the father doing them. And that it all comes from the father. And it remains a question that's very compelling and important to us to this day, even if a lot of people don't seem to even care to ask it anymore. By what authority do we do the things that we do? And so we do well to explore how we have come to this point, where people don't even seem to think about this question or ask it or care about it. The challenges that come when we don't ask this question and deal with it, and why it's so important in Christianity to respect proper authority. What's interesting is that for most of human history, people have been all too aware about who had authority. A very easy question. Well, who, who has authority around here? Who calls the shots? And, and what does that look like? Because the hand of power laid heavily on most people throughout time. There were local magistrates or warlords. There were state and regional level chiefs. And of course, kings, emperors, or other people who had authority. Many were also invested with religious authority, shamans and priests, bishops and others. And those who were in authority cultivated views that supported the premise of their authority, that they were in divinely given power, they had superior blood or ancestry, and thus it was right for them to rule over others. Now when it comes to human authority and its claims, uh, during the Enlightenment of the 18th century, a lot of uh, skepticism started to be addressed toward these uh, claims. And it's for good reason, because these kings who claimed a divine right to govern by fiat uh, did whatever they pleased. Corruption seemed to be endemic, and those who were in authority seemed to use their position for their own benefit more than for the benefit of anybody else. And so it's during the Enlightenment that this whole edifice of authority comes crashing down. And it comes crashing down with the premise of human natural rights. They're just these natural human rights that we all have uh, given to us, uh, endowed generally. Uh, the idea of the social contract, that those who rule do so because those who are underneath them uh, consent to their rule according to certain dictates. And really, in the end, Christian doctrine of all things, of the fundamental quality of all human beings, that made it very hard to sustain any claim that somebody deserved to keep authority because of their bloodline, their ancestry, or anything of that sort. And the place, above all places, where the skepticism toward authority be most manifest was in the United States of America and its experiment. The powerful success of America, the idea that the American uh, idea is worthwhile and has spread across the world, led to the collapse of aristocratic systems in Europe from 1789 to the present. In a world of equals, authority is invested in the individual. And so most take it today as self-evident that all authority and governance is really just wielded by the people who decide to invest that authority in certain representative or delegated agents that can be curtailed or deposed if the circumstances warrant. 
Now, for many generations, a lot of Christians were able to maintain a firm distinction between being under God's authority to act as he has established and also living as an empowered citizen of a country. But we've seen a continuing fraying of that concept of community and communal obligations. And there's a strong increase in the standing of individuals in individualism in America in general and even in churches. And once we add in the postmodern emphasis on a relativistic understanding of the world where what is right uh, may not be right for everybody and what is wrong might not be wrong for everybody. And now we have a situation where most people believe they are invested with authority and they therefore have very little to any need to listen to anybody else, and right and wrong are defined basically by the individual. And so in this way, in early 21st century America, the question, by what authority, falls on deaf ears. Because the answer to by what authority is by my authority, in too many uh, situations and circumstances. And we can understand that in a world in which the concept of nature or nature of God is defined in terms of individual understanding, to what other authority could anyone turn? We have seen little but erosion and confidence in institutions from government to civic organizations to churches. When a lot of Americans are confronted with authority, they assume it is being abused or used inappropriately. And on top of that, with globalization and other trends, there's a lot greater diversity. And when there's diversity, we see there's a whole lot of different ideas about things out there than we were originally uh, used to or comfortable with. And if we're going to have that diversity, either we're going to uh, try to impose some kind of uniformity, or we're going to have to uh, be tolerant of each other and different ideas. And a area that is very diverse and globalized tends to be very cosmopolitan. And a cosmopolitan area doesn't really work well with questions of authority and why we should think or act in a certain way because cosmopolitanism would demand that different people can think and act in different ways and that's okay and there's no further questions to answer. And so that's why it ends up being left to the individual to decide what is right and wrong, to look to find various influences which will lead him or her to act in ways he or she will deem appropriate. And we can see what the results are. Uh... Anyone who would claim that we need to live by thus saith the Lord are barely tolerated, if tolerated, and are often seen as primitive, backward, or to be feared, because what are they going to do? In religious discourse, we cannot expect many people to want to go back to explicit authority from God and Christ. And we've seen that all sorts of practices are now being commended in various churches. Practices very strongly condemned in those same churches not long ago. Everything from the commendation and justification of same-sex marriages and relationships, uh, attempts to eliminate any sort of gender roles, and even among those in churches of Christ, many practices and ideas are being introduced without concern for scriptural authority, merely the attempt to show a lack of condemnation. So which is it going to be? Are we going to insist on authority as a relic of the past? Or has the world just gone mad? And we still need to find out uh, appropriate authority and to live our lives as under authority. According to the scriptures, a strong understanding of authority is part of a strong foundation for Christian faith and practice. In Romans 13 and verse 1, Paul says that every person should be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So God has all authority, and he grants authority to whom he wills. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, because in Scripture, God is our creator, the Lord of the universe, and thus all power ultimately comes from him. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, and we can see in Psalm 136. So power and authority are a thing. They exist. 
and matters of handling them must be clearly addressed. God came before us, he created us, and remains above us. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so his ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. And he is our creator, and there is none before him. In Isaiah 45, 5, 18, 55, 8, 9. So that's why we should look to him to understand authority and power. Now, Matthew 28, 18-20, based upon the promise of Daniel 7, 13, and 14, God has given Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns as Lord of lords and King of kings with an, a dominion that will never end. And that is why, in Acts 2, 36, when Peter begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus of Nazareth, the force of the message is not about how Jesus died to save from sin, but that a testimony to Israel that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, that was the convicting message. God has given all power to the one you crucified. They realize, what are we supposed to do? How can we make this better? How can we serve him? This is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made to David about his anointed descendant. Jesus now reigns in his kingdom, and everybody is going to be subject to him. And at John 12:48, it is his word that will judge us on the final day. And of this judgment, we have confidence, according to Paul in Acts 17, 30-31, because Jesus is risen from the dead. That we are all going to have to stand before the judgment seat of God in Romans 14, 10-12. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, 10-11, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Jesus is Lord. Now, we're reading Romans 13.1. The reason Paul says that in Romans 13.1, it's also in the rest of verses 1-7, through 7, as well as 1 Peter 2.11-18, through 18, is the idea that God has given authority to civil government. That civil government exists for good reason, as an agent in maintaining order, to reward good behavior, and to punish evil behavior. And that those who would serve the Lord Jesus are expected to honor those who have been granted such authority by God to be subject to every human institution for the Lord's sake. On the spiritual end of things, in Matthew 18, 18, we're told that to, Jesus told the apostles that everything they would bind on earth or loose on earth will have been bound or loosed in heaven. And as Paul will say in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles are part of the foundation of the church, that they were given a special dispensation of authority to establish the teachings of what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were and meant to Christians, what it means to live as a faithful servant of Christ. That authority, we're told in Acts 1, is based on their personal experience of Jesus. To, the, trying to find a replacement for Judas, they had to find somebody who had been with Jesus from the beginning and had experienced his ministry as a witness to his life, death, and resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, Paul asked, Have I not seen the Lord? That is the basis of his apostolic authority. And when John begins his first letter, he begins it based upon the fact that he has had experience with the Word of God in the flesh. Since... Jesus came once to die, once, and has reigned in the resurrection ever since. No one else has been able, in successive generations, to see Jesus and to experience his life, death, and resurrection as the apostles did. So their authority could not be transferred or given to everybody, anyone afterward. And that is why the words of the apostles preserved in Scripture remain authoritative for Christian faith and practice. They may be dead, but they still speak through the words that we read in the New Testament, and therefore we still hear their witness. We still need to direct what we do according to what they have said. In 1 Corinthians 16, 16, Hebrews 13, 17, in local churches, Christ had established the authority of elders in the congregation is to submit to their rule. That there are people in the congregation who can rule over others because they're qualified elders shepherding the flock. 
In other relationships, Ephesians 5, 22-6-9, authority is granted to the husband, the parents, and the master, or today employer. Uh, and in a very real sense, each individual has authority over themselves and their decisions. That in Romans 14, 10-12, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account. And in that way, we have personal autonomy in the decisions that we make, what we think and feel and do, even if we find ourselves in positions where uh, what we would do is determined for us, we still have the decision what we feel and think. So everybody has some degree of authority in life. It's very important to understand what this authority is, that it's a responsibility and a stewardship, and God's going to demand an account. In Hebrews 13, 17, that is precisely why uh, people should submit to those in authority. Those who are in authority are the ones who are going to give account. Uh, That's the whole idea. Uh, If anybody uh, who has been given authority does very poorly if they go on a power trip, they need to take on that power and authority soberly and as under obligation. But indeed, authority exists. It comes from God. It's granted by God to certain people for certain reasons. And God is going to call into account everyone for how they exercise whatever authority was given to them, how they submitted to the authorities under which they lived. So everybody is going to be held accountable for the decisions they make relative to authority, both in terms of the authority they have and to how they submit to the authority that others have been given over them. Let's do a question. If we're all going to be judged by this standard, what is it? We're going to have to be held accountable. How are we living our authority? How do we do that? Well, in Colossians 3.17, Paul says that we should do all things in the name of the Lord. Now, what does it mean to do something in the Lord's name? Well, in the name of denotes by the authority of. And the idea is that we act in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're acting as ambassadors or agents of the Lord Jesus. And our thoughts, feelings, and actions should be directed by what he established. And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture. In 1 John 2, 3-6, we need to do His commandments, and we need to walk as He walked. So, the question comes to us, how can we ascertain what the Lord would have us to do? Well, we need to go back to that divine hierarchy we just mentioned, that God gave Jesus all authority in Matthew 28, 18-20, and that Jesus granted authority to the apostles to establish the kingdom. He guided them into all truth of the Spirit in Matthew 18, 18, and John 14-16 in Acts, the first chapter. These apostles taught and preached regarding the life, death, resurrection, ascension, lordship, and return of Jesus. They provided exhortations and commandments about how people should live on account of these things in Acts the Revelation. So that's their witness. And this witness is recorded in the Gospels and letters that are now the New Testament. And that is why the New Testament is the authoritative documentation of Christian faith and practice. Because the apostles proclaimed that Jesus' life was a model for the Christian. That he, he alone is the embodiment of the character of God. So I can say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, according to Hebrews 1, 3. The incarnation involves a one-time embodiment. Jesus is still Lord. He still reigns from heaven. He's still in the resurrection body. We can't see the life of Christ, though, as the apostles did. Only they could. And so we are forever dependent as Christians on the apostolic witness and testimony about Jesus, and this witness and testimony is recorded only in the New Testament. And it's amazing to see that early Christians immediately begin appealing to this apostolic testimony. They depended upon it to explain who Jesus is and why they practiced the faith as they did. When the early Christians argued against who they believed to be heretics, their arguments were rooted in the apostolic witness they found in the New Testament. And ever since, even though there's all this disagreement in Christendom, so many different church structures, so many different ways of looking at scripture many groups even had additional authorities yet all confess that the scriptures remain authoritative and the new testament is authoritative for christian faith and practice 
And that is why, if we want to fully submit to the Lord Jesus, we need to find in the pages of Scripture the authority for all that we think, feel, and do. We are assured that Scripture equips the man of God for every good work in 2 Timothy 3.17. If that's true, that means that anything that we do that's a good work will have some kind of authority rooted in Scripture. And so when we are looking for authority, when we want to make sure we're doing what is right, we find it in the pages of Scripture so we can do all the things in the name of the Lord. So authority is power. God is the source of all authority. All authority is given by Him. God's going to call into account everyone on the basis of the measure of authority granted to them, how they manage that authority, and how they submitted to authority. Jesus is Lord. We need to serve Him. And to understand how we are to serve Him, we need to find authorization from what we find in Scripture. But above all things, we need to find explicit positive authority from the Bible from all we, for all we think, say, and do. And that's a very important question these days. Why positive authorities? Shouldn't it just be enough if something is not explicitly condemned? Well, Romans 14, 22, and 23, Paul says that one is blessed if he's not uh, condemned to what he approves, and that uh, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. As we said in 2 Timothy 3, 17, the Scriptures equip the man of God for every good work. Something is authorized not because it's not wrong, but because it's commended as consistent with the faith in Christ. And therefore, while many things are spoken of as condemned in Scripture, we need to respect that witness. We're not looking necessarily for what is condemned, but what is right and good that we can focus and think on such things in Philippians 4 and verse 8. The commands of Jesus and the apostles provide authority, as after all, John says, we need to keep Jesus' commandments in 1 John 2, 3 through 5. But also biblical examples provide authority, both to explain what we should do and what we should avoid. And what has taken place among the people of God has been recorded as an example for our instruction. And we're to follow the example of Jesus and the apostles. 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul talks about Israel and gave examples to the Corinthians based on Israel, what they shouldn't do. In 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul insists strongly on the example that he and his fellow workers had manifest there in Thessalonica, that they should walk according to that witness. And of course in 1 John 2, 6, that we should walk as Jesus walked. And sometimes we also obtain authority because we have to derive necessary conclusions from the commands we've been given. To fulfill a command often requires us to think, feel, and act in ways that aren't maybe explicitly spelled out, but still need to be done. So, for instance, in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, uh, we are not to neglect uh, the habit of, of assembling, but to assemble and to encourage one another all the more as the day draws near. Uh, so if we're going to assemble, we need a place to assemble of some kind. So we therefore need to secure some kind of place to assemble uh, if we're going to assemble. That's a necessary conclusion based on Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. It's also important to understand how the scriptures authorize, because they authorize based on the scope and focus of the commands and examples. Because a lot of times when we start talking about getting explicit positive biblical authority, people start thinking, well, what, what about all of this technology? After all, we're having this conversation mediated by technology, completely uh, no, not in the mind of Jesus the Apostles in the first century. Uh, so much of our lives are touched by things that could not have been envisioned uh, in Roman times. So how can we find explicit biblical authority? Well, we need to understand how that can be done. First of all, there's a very important idea that there are a lot of times where God just doesn't give commands about what should be done, but he also specifies how it's to be done by very explicit directive or by consistent example. We call that a very specific scope of authority, and by that specific authority, all other things would be excluded. So there's an example given in Hebrews 7, 12-14. The Hebrew author treats it as clear that Jesus 
could not have been a Levitical priest because he was not the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And when God even says that uh, when God chose Levi, he by, by silence passed over the rest of the tribes, that they could not serve as priests. Christians are to assemble the first day of the week to break bread in the Lord's Supper. And all examples point to the first day of the week in Acts 20 and verse 7, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 1. And so, because the first day of the week seems to be specified, and that specificity, other days would be excluded. Christians are to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They make melody in their hearts in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. The voice is specified as the instrument, and in that specificity, other instruments are excluded. So there is the idea that we call it often specific authority. It's also very, we can also get in terms of a specific focus of how authority is ascertained. But there's a lot of other places, many, many more places, in fact, where God in Christ provides commands or he gives various or con- inconsistent examples of how those things are to be accomplished. And those are providing that general scope of authority. It justifies a lot of ways of, of accomplishing the command. So, for instance, Christians are to go and preach the gospel. They've been explicitly commanded to do that in Matthew 20, 18 through 20, and Mark 16, 15. We see from Acts 8 uh, and and 27 and other places that Christians did that by walking, by chariot, or by boat. So Christians can utilize all forms of transportation to go and preach. They uh, sent messages in writing, and they also sent messages in speaking. Uh, So they utilized whatever resources were available. And so we can see that we have liberty to exercise and to use resources like the internet, like uh, recording technology, to proclaim the gospel. And that is commended under this idea of the very general scope of the fulfillment of these commands. And we also call that liberty. It's in when uh, means are not explicitly specified, and therefore Christians can exercise their liberty. They can make some decisions based upon their particular context, which is the best way forward in terms of proclaiming the message or living the life. And really, Christians have a lot of liberty in regards to a lot of the matters of the faith. And that's important because it allows us the flexibility to serve the Lord Jesus in different times, places, and contexts. And that's why we shouldn't be afraid. We can maintain positive biblical authority for all that we do, yet still be able to live as Americans in the 21st century. We're not going to be just like every other American in the 21st century, but we can appear in many respects like a 21st century American speak in many respects like a 21st century American. And that's been the whole point the whole time with Christianity, that the kingdom is made of people all over the world at different times and places in very different contexts. And God has given the gospel that kind of flexibility to be proclaimed and lived in in those different contexts. It's important to notice with liberty, though, is that uh, with liberty, we still have to do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus in ways that glorify him. So Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, so all things may be lawful, but not all things edify. They don't all build up or they may not be profitable. Uh, in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, there are situations where the exercise of certain liberties could cause others to stumble, and therefore uh, those Christians were to withhold exercising those liberties. And so liberties are not things to, the, the hills to die on, so to speak, it's not things to insist upon, but things that we do because we have the ability to do so. But we should be willing to uh, dispense with it if it causes great difficulty so that we can do uh, things that glorify God and Christ and build up the body together. It's in these ways that we can ascertain biblical authority in all that we think, say, and do, so we can do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus in good conscience. So we should, indeed, seek to do all things in the name of the Lord with explicit and positive biblical authority. 
lot of people in theory seek to do that, but in Christendom we find no end of variation in belief and practice, and it's often manifest in very contradictory ways. How is that possible? And how can we find resolution? How can we find the way forward? Well, the state of religious confusion in Christianity should strongly reinforce why it's so important to establish explicit biblical authority for all that we say and do in ways that glorify God and Christ. And a big problem, of course, is self-delusion. There's no doubt that a lot of people are very sincerely trying to live their lives to, to glorify Jesus, but they're doing things that are not consistent with his purposes as revealed in the New Testament. And there's a danger there. Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things that I say, Jesus asks. We need to interpret the scriptures and apply their message to our lives. There's, there's no way around that. But we need to remember that we are still corrupted by sin. And our thought processes are very easily influenced by the forces of culture and forces of evil. Romans 5 and 8, 12 and verse 2. Jeremiah is right when he says it is not within a man to direct his own steps. The way that seems right to a man leads to death in Proverbs 14, 12. And in Proverbs 3, 5 through 8, true wisdom is to lean on the ways of Yahweh and his understanding. And that is why we need to continue to insist on explicit, positive biblical authority in every gen. Because in every generation, Christians have fallen away from the truth because they've gone after well-dressed lies that really accommodate to cultural attitudes or even possibly the traditions of, and issues of yesteryear because they've trusted in their own understanding or the understanding of those around them or the understanding of their venerated ancestors over that of God's. But if we relentlessly pursue this question, by what authority do we think, feel, and say the thing and do the things we think, feel, say, and do, we're going to expose those instances in which it's really human reasoning or tradition and not the word of God that's being used to justify a practice. But having said that, there's also times that Bible verses can be used to justify things which ought not to be done by Christians who would seek to faith, serve God faithfully. Peter warns us that many do twist Scripture to their own destruction in 2 Peter 3.16. A lot of this has happened because of a lack of respect of covenant distinction. Many times people have reintroduced ideas and practices rooted in what God commanded to Israel through Moses, but was not commended by Christ and the apostles in the New Covenant against the message of Galatians 5, Colossians 2, and Hebrews 7-9. through 9. A lot of times the full witness of Scripture is not being appreciated, that many will overemphasize one element of what God has made known over other elements, and thus throw the harmonious message into confusion, uh, overemphasizing some to the neglect of others, uh, when it's the sum of God's word that is truth in Psalm 119, 160. And we can think of a lot of other examples where things like this happened. Now, in this environment, we have all of these forms of difference. There's really seemingly two ways forward. We either have what we call ecumenical accommodation or insistence on explicit biblical authority. Now, Christendom, by and large, have treated most of the differences among their various tribes according to this idea of ecumenical accommodation. What that means is as long as you agree to a certain basic set of ideas, uh, mostly the creeds about the nature of God and Jesus, um, everything else is fine. That uh, if something was an issue in the first millennium, then disagreement is really tolerated. It's very hard to square that idea with how Paul treats Judaizing tendencies in Galatia and warns about false doctrines to Timothy and Titus, and let alone the fact that many in these groups that right now are trying to push this idea that, well, we're all Christians, just different flavors and things of that nature, didn't really feel that way about those same groups uh, a century ago and earlier. Has Jesus changed in the past century? Have the scriptures changed? Or were all Christians so quite deluded for 1900 years and so we moderns got it all figured out? Well, by no means. And that's why the way forward can't be this ecumenical accommodation. That we need to maintain confidence in biblical authority to discuss what is authorized and unauthorized in that shared framework. 
As long as people do not respect the authority of God manifest in Christ, preserved in the witness and testimony of Scripture, we can't agree about what is right and true. And that is why a healthy and robust understanding of authority proves critical to faithful service to the Lord Jesus and shared association in the faith. In Matthew 8, we're told the following story about Jesus. That when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So there's this Roman centurion who wants Jesus to heal his servant. The centurion declares he's unworthy for Jesus to enter his house. That all that Jesus needs to do is say the word and the servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at the centurion, declaring that he had not found such faith in all of Israel. But how could this be? What does Jesus see in the centurion? Well, the centurion is part of the Roman Empire, Roman army, excuse me, which had gained its empire on the strength of his discipline and in its hierarchy. The centurion was a man under authority. He had men under him, and he knew that the one who had authority, if he said something, it would be done. And so since that worked in his life as a soldier, it worked with Jesus. He, if Jesus is Lord, whatever he said would be done, and his word is sufficient. We can only share in the faith of that centurion. That trust that Jesus is Lord, whatever he says, will happen if and when we understand authority like that centurion. To understand that if Jesus is Lord, what he says will take place. If we put our trust in him, that he is the one calling the shots, he has the authority, and that that's why we trust in him. All those who recognize Jesus as Lord and live according to his dictates, confessing that whatever Jesus says will be done and must be done, will recline at table with him and the patriarchs of the kingdom. But all who insist on their own way or their own understanding will be as the sons of the kingdom Israel and will be cast out. And that is why we do well to live under the authority of God in Christ and to all whom he has delegated authority, to use the authority that he has given us to serve him according to what he has made known in Scripture and to obtain the resurrection of life. If you've really enjoyed what we've talked about or you find it beneficial that you think others would benefit from it, we'd really encourage you to go ahead and share with uh, your friends and family and other people. Uh, perhaps you'd like to discuss more about the issues of authority or you'd like to discuss other issues. You'd like to explore other discussions or articles. Maybe you'd like to have a Bible study correspondence course. You'd like to come and visit us and find out more about us. Please, uh, you can find out more about the Venice Church of Christ online at venicechurchofchrist.org. We're also on social media. If you'd like to contact me personally, if I can be of any service to you, please let me know uh, at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.